You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Peter Holtz, an ARIA award-winning audio mixer, producer, and songwriter. Peter has mixed, recorded, and written songs for a range of Australian and international artists and performers, including the Veronicas, Jessica Malboy, Delta Goodrum, as well as Gang of Youths, Peking Duck, Vance Joy, and many others. In this episode, Peter recounts his strong fascination with music and sounds, early experiments with multi-track recording, and his pursuit of the mysterious sparkle of vocal harmonies. Peter outlines his approach to studio work and the dynamics of collaborating with artists in the recording, producing, and mixing process. Peter also shares his thoughts on the technology and processes used in previous as well as contemporary music production, the importance of learned skills in creative industries, and the simple yet profound value of taking the time to read the software user manual. Here's my conversation with Peter Holtz. Yeah, I like the look of that. Okay, so you don't usually use this sort of thing? Um, I mean, I have used heaps of field recorder. I've used many field recorders in my time, um, <laughs> but not so much anymore. I mean, I'm always in a studio or this studio, so okay, where there's things permanently set up to do it. Yep. Yeah. So, so thank you, Peter. Here we are in your studio. Hello. Um, so what's going on here? How did we get here? How did you get here? Uh, well, this although I've been doing this for like. I feel like I've been doing this audio music production thing professionally for maybe 15 years now. This is kind of like the first time I've been in a, or been um, based in a real, what I'd call a real studio where it's properly soundproofed. It's got proper air conditioning. It has windows that look through into booths. It's kind of like a thought about structure as opposed to just a room that we've set up in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've kind of, yeah, I've been through stages of like having set up in my bedroom, having a spare room in a terrace house having a back room at another studio into another back room and now I'm sort of here in, in this room, which is cool. Yeah, it's nice in here. So obviously you can make do, you can kind of design around, you get the get the kind of studio-like conditions, mm. but it's nice, I guess, to have it set up specifically. Yeah, it's basically two main things, which is soundproofing, which is actually a um, very expensive venture. Because of the materials, I guess. and the Yeah, and the construction technique, it has to be all isolated. So you can build a room quite easily and cheaply, but it won't be soundproof. And you can treat the inside of the room so it sounds good in the room, but you'll still be able to hear stuff coming from outside. Oh, yeah. So we're yeah. kind of like in a box, in a box here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then it's the air to get the fresh air in and out. You have to have proper air conditioning where these sort of come through silences and stuff like that. Oh, right. So when you say proper, that just basically means so you can't hear it. It's kind of designed for yep. these sort of conditions. Definitely, yeah. So less about the studio. Okay. And so you mentioned that you'd been doing, um, you know, recording in bedrooms or terrace houses. Or yeah. Can you tell us more, like, back, back way back then, 15 well, years ago or I guess longer? It, yeah, yeah. Well, it probably started when I was really little... I think my dad gave me a little cassette recorder, just a little thing with a microphone built in and you could sort of record yourself talking and then listen to yourself back and I was always fascinated by that. Um, and then I got like a four-track cassette um, recorder, which was a pretty common thing 
for people to have as their first sort of music recording device. So what was that? What did that record to? What? To a cassette tape. Oh, right. So just a normal cassette tape that you'd usually get. You like know, a via. compact cassette. That yeah. Classic kind of look. Yeah. Standard one, but you could fit four channels onto it the way the machine worked. So a little bit more kind of professional in its less for the consumers type thing more. Yeah, they would call it like prosumer. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, where it's like there were different levels of them, but they were kind of aimed at people to use at home, but um, not... But there were like still tape recorders in big studios, but they were professional tape recorders. And they were, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and stuff like that. Whereas something that I might use would, would have been a few hundred dollars. So I started with that. That was good. So what did yeah. you, you, you plonked it down rather than went roaming out into the field, I guess I'm imagining, like you're in a room of some sort. Yeah, yeah. So what sort of things were you interested in capturing, recording? Well, I was always fascinated with music and specifically like vocal harmonies like when people would sing together that's kind of why i feel like i'm here it's like loved when people sang together especially like the beach boys oh yeah that was what i really remember when i was little was like the beach boys how do they do that with them all singing at the same time and how what were they doing inside the studio i was always fascinated with the studio and the the equipment and the gear and what was happening in the studio because it was able to achieve that sound or what, what just the, like the mechanics of it or yeah kind of both like i love just the final artistic output of just listening to it and me like i i like this it sounds nice and it makes me feel a certain way but then i was also fascinated with the details like what are the details how are they doing this what do you mean the, oh you mean the the kind of techniques yeah or... the, the musical con compositional details and also like the electronic like the studio equipment kind of stuff like what what are they doing in there with the microphones and the stuff with the knobs on it. I was always fascinated with that from when I was really little. So when you got this four-track recorder, what, what did you do then? Who what did You recorded some friends or family? Oh, or? I just recorded myself. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because I, I always played guitar from when I was pretty little, maybe from when I was five or six, maybe. Obviously not very well, but no, I was but... always fascinated with guitar. Right. So then with the four-track, you could kind of record yourself playing something and then listen back to it and record something else on top of that and start to layer it and overdub so, it. So, like, the record a guitar track and then record a bit of singing on top of that? Yeah. Then, yeah, definitely. Um, or, like, another guitar or, like, two... I was like, oh, that's how you do it. You sing one thing and then you record another thing and that becomes a vocal harmony. I was like, oh. Right. Whereas the, I didn't know the Beach Boys were actually mainly doing it live, like, just singing together onto one track, basically. So, how I guess you did some research back in those days to figure out this is how, you, how it's done type thing. Yeah. This is how to use this device. Yeah, yeah. So did you sing in a different way, the kind of the the second, the, for the second track type thing? Or, you know, yeah, well, deep you'd, and then high or something? Yeah, you'd have to figure out, well, if you sang a melody, like what's the, the harmony to this? Usually it would follow the same shape, but just sort of be an offset to that. And then that, that kind of ties into like musical theory, basically, whereas you need to sort of understand how it works. But you could figure it out on the guitar and be like, oh, it should sound like that. And then you could sing it instead of playing it on the guitar. Yeah, so did you kind of, like, I guess that kind of timeless universal relationship, if that's the word, that, that kind of theory has with practice, did you kind of dive into and find out all the theory or did you just sort of give it a go and, you know, or uh, a combination of both? It's a bit of both, I think. I feel like I'm still kind of figuring out bits and pieces about how to do things for, for music in a studio. Um, but lot, yeah, lots of experimentation, which is, I feel like, how everyone... Even they, how even they were getting into it. Just sort of figure, well, figure I guess, out as I go. Yeah, that kind of the, the nature of that, like it's a creative pursuit. Yeah. 
So what sort of songs, like Beach Boys songs, I, I dare say, you recorded or Ooh, can you I, think back? I don't know. I'm sure I would have tried to recreate some of their harmonies because the thing about their harmonies would be like five different parts at the same time. So it's, you could listen to it and be like trying, trying to pick them out. Okay, someone's singing this bit, someone else is singing that bit. How is it put together? Um, so trying to deconstruct it, basically. Yeah. And then what happened to... What happened, like, the pathway to these recordings? Like, who listened to them? Just... Or, you know, did they Pro- go anywhere? Probably just me. Like, <laughs> I, st- I still feel like everything I do now, I'm only just doing it for myself to listen to. Even when I'm, you know, being paid to work on someone else's music, I still just feel like I'm just doing it for my, my own enjoyment. Just for fun type thing. Yeah, kind of, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. So then when you were kind of... um. What, like, did, did you kind of get into more of a uh, considered approach? Like, you know, did the four track lead to a, a more sophisticated piece of equipment? Or, yeah. you know, was this in, I guess, high school, I'm guessing? or Yeah, what's... I was probably probably in early high school when I first started to experiment with recording equipment. And then probably after the four track, it would have been something like a hard disk recorder, which is similar to what you've got there. Yeah. Um, which is something that was not based around a cassette, so it was a bit more reliable. Yeah. And sort of would last a bit longer. Yeah. You could record longer tracks. You could record more tracks. You could have eight tracks instead of four or something like that. Yeah, because you're kind of in that territory, you would have, I'm assuming, had your eyes out for different technology, different gear that comes up and what it can do, how much does it cost. Yeah. You know, so you got your hands on one of these and then, you know... Yeah, it just kept going from there. Like then it obviously became, this was probably, at that point I got the hard drive recorder of maybe like 1999 or something like that, which was the same year that um, the software that I use now was kind of introduced as a free thing. So if you had a computer, you could get this software called Pro Tools. Yes. Which would then allow you to do all kinds of stuff that you would never have been able to do with a cassette recorder or a hard disk recorder. So then what happened in terms of, that at that point did that then open up a whole new territory or you know yeah possibilities yeah it kind of opens up a lot more options which is good and bad because it allows you to kind of delay your creative decisions till the last minute but it also allowed you to kind of explore things that you wouldn't been able wouldn't have been able to do before so you could try something out or you could basically you could try something out and if you didn't like it you could undo it whereas with a cassette recorder once, right. once you did it, you'd record it over the old part. Apple Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I remember someone telling me that she was a artist and she had she started having dreams of Apple Z. And, <laughs> and so she was really disturbed by it, saying, I, but you can't do that in real life. But it's just, I'm on that keyboard all day doing Apple Z, hmm. undoing creative decisions that don't necessarily kind of, you know, correlate in the real world. But then for a designer, they do correlate. Yeah. Well, I've kind of come back around now. Like I like to do a lot more things where I'll commit the sound or commit to the sound before it's recorded. So I, I can't go back and change it. So however I do that, like if I use a specific instrument or a specific microphone, it's like that's been recorded. You you can't go back and change that now. So that sounds like it's a preferable kind of I think approach. so it probably took me a while to get to that point because I always used to go with this mindset of like you need to make sure you can go in a different direction at any point in time but then I thought maybe that that kind of can inhibit the process 
Because you've, you've got too many options. You have option paralysis sometimes. Yeah, you mean like kind of in principle, if you've got options, you've got creative uh, potential, yeah. that type of thing. But if yeah. you limit those options, then that's a, that's a bad thing? Or oh, no, I think it's a good thing. A good thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it might take a... It might be like a scary thing. And I was always taught to not do that, like always maintain your options. But yeah. then working with other people doing what I do, I'm like, oh, they just commit to it straight away. And it sounds great. And then they just move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's oh. a different dynamic going yeah, on. Yeah, and yeah. And and you can work things faster. Obviously, you need the experience to know what's going to work and what's not going to work. But mm. yeah, committing. So then, then what happened? You've, you kind of had all this quite early experience with, you know, different pieces of equipment. Yeah. Then did you kind of make a move to, you know, f- uh, do extra training or study or, you yeah. know? Well, I, I grew up in a, a country town and I always wanted to, like, move out of there to the city because I was like, that's where the music studios are. So I was pretty driven, like, from even when I was really little. I remember being like, I'm going to be in a studio with a glass window and knobs and stuff. I always had this dream to do that. So I moved to the city and I studied like audio engineering and I started to sort of assist or intern at a recording studio and um, just started to work up my own sort of client base from there. And and also just getting um, exposure to like the real world practical application of all this stuff that I'd learned. It's like, oh, how does it actually happen in a, a real sense, like in an actual studio with actual musicians doing it? Mm. Not, not just sort of talking about it and stuff like that. Yeah, like a, from the perspective of a practitioner. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. probably where I learned the most. Also just how to how to act. Not not so much how to use the equipment and what to do, it's just how to how to react to circumstances with people. I learned a lot of that just by watching other engineers do it basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Just the kind of almost the beyond protocols is sort of like the dynamic of the situation yeah. the whole situation definitely yeah and i've seen people lose or focus too much on the technical stuff and sort of not succeed because they haven't just been a fun person to hang out with in a room basically mm. yeah it's interesting yeah i guess it's all these um kind of not invisible but they're kind of unspoken components definitely. you know yeah it's kind of for a very holistic uh kind of sort of experience as I look over at your whiskey decanter. <laughs> yeah, it's just empty Next. now. It was full recently, but we had a... It's just the thing you need in a, um, <laughs> in a recording studio. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so it seems as though you've got... Um, you've sort of had this, this whole pathway happening for quite a while, you know, getting closer and closer and closer to where you want to be type thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I always had this dream where I could only do this and make all my money from doing this. It probably took like, you know, it took a long time to get to that point where I sort of finally cut the cord on having a real job. I was like, I think I can actually survive by only going into a music studio and just mess what I I think of just messing around. But and still every day I'm like, this is a job. I'm getting paid to just play guitar and keyboard and sing songs and talk about music to people. I'm like, oh, cool. That's so, good. so these people that you're kind of talking talking music with or recording, how how did that kind of when did that when did, did the onboarding process, I guess, of when making you making the transition from just recording yourself earlier, yeah, like when you're kind of getting other people like singers, were they singers or were yeah, they singers and bands or whatever, like some kind of either yeah one person or group, usually a band, and the studio that I sort of started interning at eventually i sort of 
started doing my own sessions there or they'd say hey Pete we want you to do this session and you do it and if you did a good job that band would want to work with you again and then they'd tell their friends and all word of mouth kind of stuff and it was all based on like if you were a fun person to hang out with like obviously you had to know how to operate the equipment and make the the session flow but I realized it was like if you were a fun person and you make it enjoyable people will want to come back as long as it sounds good yeah You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, I understand about maybe five years ago, things started to shift around a little bit. Things started happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a moment, actually, when my first child was born, where I decided to... That was when I decided to cut the cord and not have a real job anymore. I was like, I'm just going to go 100% in on this freelance entrepreneur running my own business as a creative art producer kind of thing. And it's like, and hopefully it'll work. And within that first year, I made more money than I did any other year. <laughs> it worked out well then. And then, I mean, I, I have a lot of role models and idols that I look up to and like even, you know, they're decades further down the track than me. And they still kind of run with this principle of like, it could all end at any time. So it's all just based on hopefully the phone keeps ringing or you kick any inquiries. There's no sort of set thing that you can rely on. So it kind of makes you work hard to do do good work and also try and find more work to do, which hopefully comes to you anyway if you do good work. So yeah, cutting the cord was good. Then I started working at a major record label at Sony Music sort of as an in-house producer engineer, which kind of, that was definitely an amazing opportunity that, opened a lot of doorways for me which was great that was mainly like being just the person who was there for the job doing a good job and then forming a relationship with an artist and then continuing to work together yeah so what does that look like when you you know when you're using the equipment correctly for example and then forming a relationship with the artist yeah what like on a practical sense, what is what does it look like? Well, I have this pretty distinct memory of the the first day that I worked in that studio. It's a big studio. It looks really sort of daunting, and there's lots of equipment and like many lots hundreds of, of things, hundreds of things that could go wrong at any point in time, and all the pressures on you. And I kind of got in early, and I practiced, and I read the manuals, and I you know had been studying for years about how this stuff works. I was like, okay, I'm, it's going to be okay. There's a certain personality type that reads the manual. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I'm that guy. I love a good <laughs> manual. Um, yeah, as if you know more than someone else, you'll get the job. That's the way that I looked at it. Not in a competitive kind of way, but if you know more and you can do it quicker and fast, or yeah, if you can do it faster and more reliably. Accur- accurately, accurately, reliably. Yeah, and at the end of this session, the producer who I was, I was acting as an engineer, which is me operating the equipment and taking direction from a producer yes. in terms of music. So you have to be across how the equipment's working, what the singer's thinking, what the producer's doing, um, what they might want to do next, what they did 10 minutes ago that they might be like, oh, I remember that thing we did 10 minutes ago and being able to be like, yeah, I've got that here, ready to go. And I remember just being across all of that as I usually would have. And at the end of the session, that producer saying to me like, hey, you did a really good job. I'm going to tell the, you know, the manager here that I want you to do, you know, the rest of my stuff. I was like, oh, okay, that's how it happens. And that sort of moved on through many artists. So the way I looked at it was just like, I'd put in all this practice, kind of like I was um, practicing a musical instrument to then go and play a performance. 
same kind of idea I put in this practice into the how to use the equipment. So when I was doing the performance, I did it really well and people wanted to come see me play again, basically. That's the way I looked at it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was good. And then what sort of... Um like genres or approaches to music or what sort of like pop i guess or rock or what's... yeah well prior to that i'd done a lot of rock music just with bands sort of like guitar bass drums singing which is great i love that and that's kind of still what i consider as my sort of core background but when i started at sony i started to do a lot of pop music which i hadn't really done before and so what was that like uh, it was good. It was mainly based on singing, like really intricate work on the singing. Like not so... The music was sort of secondary to the singing. So the, What does that mean? Well, the music could be quite simple and somewhat sequenced and programmed. Um, and all the focus was on the voice. Whereas in rock music, it's I feel like it's maybe a 50-50 kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Between the music and the voice. Whereas pop music, it's like nearly 100% the voice. And maybe the... Well, if there is any other percentage left, it would be like the drums and the bass line, stuff that makes you move. But most people are just listening to the voice and the words and stuff like that. So then because you're this skilled up, um, you know, pleasant to work with studio engineer. Yeah. How do, you, how, do you, how do you prepare for doing a good job with a voice, for example? Um, it'd be knowing the capability of the singer, knowing what they can and can't do. So what are you on a you know everyday level? What, yeah. do, what do you do? Like, do you just ask them to you know sing a little bit? And yeah, you'll try stuff out. Listen? That that'll be it. And a lot of this harks back to my like listening to the Beach Boys all the time. Like, oh, this is what singing is, and I'll be like, oh, why don't you try this part? And that would be my memory going back to when I was a child, trying to listen to all these vocal parts and be like, oh, they're doing that, they're doing that, and just applying that then in a real world kind of thing saying to singers, hey, why don't you try this melody that goes like, no, 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 and they'll try it. And they'll be like, they'll be like oh, that's, that sounds good. Let's put that in the song. So do you do that like just kind of like in a room or do you sort of have them on the other side of the glass or how do you? Uh, sometimes you've you've kind of prepared it and you've rehearsed it and thought about it and written it down at, in the same room just basically with a, you might even just have an acoustic guitar just be humming through the song. Then other times it's like spur of the moment stuff as you'll list as they're singing one part i might be hearing another part when they finish what they're doing i'll press stop and get onto the microphone and be like hey let's try this other part that i've just thought of it goes like this hum it to them and they'll go all right i'll give it a go but what how do you like i guess this is a million dollar question how do you how do you just think of possibilities well that's that's what i that's the thing I, i don't know and i used to think how do people do it how do they just go and write a song and then I started doing these sessions, which were songwriting sessions, where it was like you were basically forced, you know, in a matter of, in a way of speaking, forced well, into a room. Yeah. And the, the idea was... You were assigned like, that task. Yeah. It was like, write a song in this four hours or eight hours. Wow. And it wasn't... Because usually I, I, <laughs> I thought that songs would just come naturally and freely, and which they still do. But you, I saw that you could definitely be put into a situation and just have to go, let's just create a song, whatever. You got an idea? Hum, hum an idea? Cool, love that idea. Here's some chords, go, and you're off. Well, are you given like a brief of, you know, territory you need to explore in the song? Usually there's a there's some kind of brief, whether it's just the artist's previous work. So oh, you, yeah. you kind of have an idea of what, you know, it's not going to be a country song if you're working with an R&B singer or something like that. So there'll be some kind of... Although there is a bit of a crossover. That, that yeah, maybe. well, maybe it should be. Yeah, country's sort of leaking into everything now. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, it's kind of bizarre. You never know what's going to happen. Lots of times it'll happen from a singer just singing a melody and me going, oh, I think these chords will fit behind that and just figuring it out. And it might take 20 seconds. You're like, cool, we've got an idea for a song here. Let's explore it. So there's, it sounds like there's more than a few things happening at the same time, you know, in terms of the guy that presses the buttons, the guy that kind of directs the artist, the guy that kind of literally writes the lyrics, or, yeah. you know. Is it all part of a big, like, well, yeah, how does it happen separately or all at once? It could be one person acting as all of those, acting in all those roles. You could be the engineer, the producer and the writer, so you're operating the equipment, you're actually writing the parts and playing the parts. That's pretty common these days is that you'll have someone who's a producer, engineer, songwriter. Right. Who can do it all. So, but that wasn't always the case by the sounds uh, of it. Usually not. Usually you would have an engineer separately to a producer, separately to a songwriter, separately. Sometimes you'd have someone who would write chords and someone who would only write words. And that would be called the top liner where they just write the words and the melody. They wouldn't write any of the rhythms or the chord progressions or anything they would just hear stuff and be like this could have this melody over it and that's a really specific skill and there are lots of people that just do that they're just top line writers they might not even be able to play a piano or any instrument but they they can come up with melodies really well that's a really good skill to have and people have had whole careers just doing that um yeah so when you're when you're liaising with the artist do you have like say a piano or a guitar to to kind of help communicate what you're after or the options or you just kind of just use words or how, how do you uh, I mean if you're still in the, if you're still in the writing process you probably have like a piano or a guitar going on sometimes you might just have a really simple chord progression just playing as a loop and you're just sort of humming ideas sometimes you'll do that for an hour just to keep a chord progression looping in a dark room and people are just humming and they'll be like, hey what did you just hum there I like that and then what you might People will feed off each other and pick up different ideas and sing a random word. Hey, that word sounds good. Sometimes it's even just the sound of the word. Oh, yeah. It doesn't even matter about the word itself. Just the actual sound. What's a good word that you've come across lately? Surrender? I don't know. Oh, right. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't know. You You can even just... Some songs start just by a word. Someone's like... Or a phrase. Oh, that's a cool phrase. And then that's like a little seed of something to kind of build upon. Definitely. And then it's sort of other things hang off that or yep. something like that that's a pretty common way that a song will start is from a phrase or a, or a, a a single word even sometimes yeah so is that the type of territory that you kind of most comfortable in or do you want to start specializing even further or i don't know like uh, yeah i feel like there's people that are really good songwriters like i i definitely do a lot of songwriting but i feel like i'm more of a specialist in the the end of the process which is after the song's been written it's been recorded and you're doing the final, final tweaks on the way it sounds. That's where I really feel like I'm, I specialise in, is the ultra-fine details of how it's presented. So the creative stuff has been done, songs been written, it's been recorded well and played well and all those kind of things, and you're just tweaking all the elements, kind of like the final presentation of the whole thing. That's, so, that's my favourite bit. So when you were talking earlier, you said about the this idea that if it's happening... I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but it was like the bad, it was bad or something, or you had to delay the control, creative control or something. It wasn't happening now, it was happening later. Mm. But then now, as in what you're 
just talking about is yeah. you kind of prefer that there's something that's happening right at the end in post-production yeah that's it i'm like i like that final post-production stage purely because it feels like i'm pl- i'm in control of all the instruments and all of the sounds it's like it's like i'm able to play them all like if i don't like the way that the guitar sounds i can just turn it off or turn it down so you're in control of what the listener hears and you can draw their focus into certain parts just by the way that you do the post-production basically which is a skill all in itself there are people that just specialize in only doing that they may, may not be able to write songs at all but they're good at what do you what do you call that mixing ah yeah, yeah. okay that's the sort of the final step so for those just like in general terms mixing is kind of um emphasize like turning the drums up or the piano down or the voice up in this specific area yeah that kind of stuff and also like what does the piano sound like is it dark is it bright is it echoey is it is it dead? All those kind of things you can really adjust. But do you have to go back in and say, look, this is just needs to be re-recorded because we want a dead sounding piano and it's just not doing it? Sometimes. Or... Yeah, yeah. You, it depends on the scale of the project or the budget of the project usually. No one has any money to do this anymore. So it's it's usually like whatever you've got, just make the most of it. There will, of course, reach a point where you're like, I can't get this to sound like you want it to sound. This needs to change. Who it, says that? Um, sometimes I'll say it. Sometimes I'll even redo people's parts without telling them, which is a, or maybe I should. Oh, like instruments? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like keyboard parts or guitar parts. If they get to me and I'm trying to piece them together into a final product and they're not working, there's many hundreds of times where I've just redone the part. Never told anyone. No one, no one ever knows. <laughs> it's just like a... And they're like, hey, the guitar sounds great. And I'm like, cool. No worries. <laughs> I guess it's like, um copy editing like if you've got an article or a paragraphs aren't hanging together and then you you know shuffle a few words around or something and then it it just all hangs together better definitely you're not going to go back to the original creator and yeah then, you know might That's be torturous yep. just to kind of just shuffle things around a little bit hmm. but then obviously it's kind of i guess it sort of strikes me as being very uh all the little components you must have a high amount of control over everything yeah yeah it's very detail oriented um some styles of music don't require a lot of detail a lot of it's just it has to be captured in the performance and the mixer is just basically allowing that to come through clearly but sometimes the mixer is actually creating like if you listen to it before and after it the mixer had touched it it would be like a different completely different kind of thing but you wouldn't be able to put your finger on why it's different it's just lots of tiny details have come together yeah, I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. The details, the Beach Boys details is what I always thought of. Mm. Even though their stuff was recorded quite simply with basic equipment and not many tracks. Well, yeah, and Lots it was of sort of like a different era, a non-digital era. Definitely, yeah, where a lot of it was sort of performed live, but the detail in that case was put into before they recorded it. They would make sure that what everyone was going to play was very well rehearsed, exactly as Brian wanted it, and then that hit record instead of trying to do it afterwards. Both of which are good ways to do it. Yeah, it's good. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. The Brian Wilson sparkliness, like, and, like, how they used to do it then and how we do it now 
Yeah. I feel like now the the difference is everyone has the tools to do it. Like if you want to get the sound of someone playing a harp with a piece of plastic or something like that, they would have had to have found someone to do that. Whereas now I could I could bring up a sound like that instantly. So I feel like now everyone has like all of these tools, more options at their disposal, but it's still down to the, um, the creator or the producer to use them wisely. So I don't know, I feel like lots of people, I, I feel like there's a, an opinion, a common opinion in the world that music is manufactured and uh, computer based and stuff now, which of course it is sequenced timing wise, but still choosing the sounds and putting something together is a very sort of specific thing to do. It's not an easy idea. It's not like I can just go like, I'll create a Beach Boys production now immediately. I need to know the tools. It's like I need to put the practice in to know which tool to use at the right time. Yeah, Otherwise it'll just sound like a garbled mess. And there's, yeah. I guess it's the skill involved in that those decisions, the yeah. decision making. So I guess it's kind of something that um, might, might be an assumption now is that you've got control over instruments that are convincing to a, a, a person's ear. Yeah. It's like, whereas 25 years ago, it would sound very tinny and yeah, kind definitely. of crappy and, oh, that sounds like an electronic kind of um, attempt at a violin or something. Mm. Whereas now you can kind of uh, work electronically and be able to have something that's, you know. Yeah, you get this ultra-realistic kind of thing going. With that said, now you can... Re, like those original sounds, like you mentioned, like an old violin. Say, like we might pull up a violin sound from a synthesizer from the eighties, which you could say like sounds nothing like a violin, and it sounds a bit silly. But they were those kind of sounds were used on lots of classic songs, mm. and people have become accustomed to them. So, like I could turn on one of these keyboards now, play a sound, and you'll be like, "Oh, I know that sound. I've heard that." Yeah, sound. see, that's interesting. Yeah, because it's so subjective. Yeah, or you know. Yet, is it a good sound, or you've just heard it before? Yeah. yeah, and it's hard. You can't go into someone's head and unscramble their memory mm. to kind of say, "Oh no, but you are mistaken. That is a synthesized instrument." Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like it's it's got its own validity. Yeah. I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. And like that's coming back now. Like lots of the pop music I hear now has like what I would refer to as like '80s sounds in them, which at the time in the '80s there was a huge change where like lots of the digital synthesizers and samplers came out totally recrafted the way that music sounded and could be made. And then people sort of shunned that for a while during the 90s, went back to guitars and rock and stuff like that. Yes. And now it's coming back again. Like I, most of the stuff I hear is like, that sounds like an 80s, like even just today, I did two songs that are like got an, what I'd call an 80s-esque flavor, which is great. I love that stuff. There's one keyboard in the 80s called the DX7, which was really hard to use, but it had 32 built-in sounds. And those 32 built-in sounds, I could scroll through all of them and you'd probably recognize all of them from hit songs in the 80s. So, yeah, in some ways it was like the actual equipment that you were given by the manufacturers dictated what the art was. So the, cool. the practitioners back in those days would have kind of uh, been across what what the limitations of the, the setup or the equipment was. And, you know, they kind of... Uh, creating with with those limitations, if that's what they are. Yeah. Whereas now, it's kind of you've got even the the parameters are almost unlimited. Surely. Yeah, definitely. And people look back at like 
recordings from the 50s, 60s, 60s and 70s with like a lot of nostalgia and say that they sound better. And sometimes people put a lot of um, like emphasis on they sound better because of the equipment that was used. But I've often thought that it, those bits of music sound better because it was people playing together. What Whereas, does that mean? Well, like if you listen to like, I don't know, like Eagles, uh, Led Zeppelin, this kind of classic rock kind of stuff, even the Beatles and stuff like that, um, people say it has a really great sound, but that was because the bands were really good and they played together all the time and they could go into a studio and just play and they sounded good as a unit. The equipment was kind of superfluous, so it didn't really matter. The, equip the equipment was just what they had, but the raw sound of the musicians was, was good to start with. Fleetwood Mac, stuff like that. It's like, it just feels good. Not because of the equipment, but just because of the musicians. And that's, that's less and less these days. Bands sort of rely on pe being, able, being able to piece it together, not so much playing it really nicely once. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, a weird thing. Whereas like the Beatles were a really good band because they played like thousands of shows over and over and over and over. They just were like in tune with each other's timing. Yeah, um, and now people can try and recreate that with editing, but it just doesn't never feels right. So then oh. they blame the equipment. But but this is this is <laughs> you're a um, a mixer, or you know you're a kind of producer. Yeah, you're you're the man that's putting together that all those components for a particular aim. Yeah, and so it must be possible. Oh, definitely. Like with that said, I still love things that are ultra edited and precise and sequenced like this. I still get a lot of pleasure out of that. In fact, in some ways I like it more than what I call organic music, which is music that's been played by a human. Like some of the programmed and sequenced stuff because you have such infinite control or nearly infinite control over the sound of it and how it basically it's timing. So what's that about? Why, why are these things important? to the, you know, a listener's enjoyment. Well, yeah, I mean, I usually try and take a step back as I'm working on a song and just listen to it as if I'm just a listener, which took me a while to be able to do that, just to like literally stand up and walk to the outside of the room and be like, if this was just playing somewhere, um, what would I think of it? As opposed to me sitting there and really concentrating on the sound of the vocal and the snare drum and stuff like that. So it's why I use this speaker on the other side of the room Sometimes I'll play it through that as if it was just a song playing in the background. Oh, the one literally over here? Yeah, just like an old boombox just in the corner. So I'm not too focused on the actual quality of the sound. I'm just like, does the song feel good? Like, does the shape of the song, the dynamic, the movement of it, does it feel right? Like, I don't care about the details of the, the intricate items. Does it feel nice as a piece? Uh, it took me a while to sort of get to that point where you could listen subjectively um, and just feel like but basically the way I'd, I'd try and listen to a song is if I can listen to it without going oh and thinking about it then it's right if I'm not distracted by it then it's right there should be sort of no distraction as you're listening to the song it should in some ways be able to just play in the background and you don't notice it if you notice it it's usually because there's something wrong it's like um intriguing because it's this really quite precise um, quantifiable process mm. but then layered seamlessly on top of that seems like it's a um, highly like a subjective unquantifiable how do you measure that yeah. how do you know and then you know you oh it just feels right or that's know. it yeah how do you <laughs> I know it's a, and I was I'd hear people say it and I'm like yeah yeah whatever that's just some like sort of wishy-washy stuff like what are you actually doing technically to make that happen and it's 
the way I looked at it is if you learn all the technical stuff, you learn exactly how all the details, read all the manuals, how all the gear works, as get as nerdy as you want about all the tech stuff, that's really good so that you can then sort of forget about it. And in the, in the, back, of, the back of your mind, you're operating on a technical level, but all the decisions you're giving to your technical mind are just based on your sort of reaction to the music. So you, I'm never trying to think of it as like, I need to meet these technical guidelines. Of course, there are audio things where you that do need to... a little bit of a, a play-acting nerd voice then. I yeah, would. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't... Yeah, but you, when you're in the zone, it's kind of not uh, not such a good thing. You, you mentioned that earlier to get yeah. into the to kind of more, more of a technical approach. You, you yeah. really do need that holistic... Yeah. Um, is that the best word to describe it? Or well, yeah, you or need human? to... Human? Yeah, yeah. You, you just need to understand all the technical stuff so you can remove it from your sort of creative vision, which I guess is the same for any sort of artistic thing. It's like a painter would need to know which brush and what type of paint and how to mix it and what temperature it needs to be. But they would just be just doing that automatically. They would just kind of have that all sorted out. Mm. They probably spent years thinking about it. So I guess a question is, can, can these skills or attributes be taught or is it something that you think was what you innate? You, you kind of always had it. And uh, it's just sort of a matter of uncovering it or, you know, combination of the two or... Yeah, probably. Like, I definitely feel like I've learnt a lot of it, like, from just from watching other people do it and, and listening to them talk about it in, what's, in what I used to think was sort of like an arty-farty kind of like, oh, it's a very sort of grand sort of, oh, just let it happen and it'll all be fine. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. What are you actually doing technically? But then the deeper I dug, I found out that these people really, really had a very deep technical understanding, but they sort of developed that so that they could have that in their stash at any point in time if they heard a sound and they... The way that I think of it is I'll listen to a sound and if I want to change it, I can already hear what I want it to sound like and I just know exactly which tool I need to do, need to get out of my toolbox to make it get to that point. I don't need to sort of fumble around technically to make it happen. I'll only reach into the technical world for a really specific reason that I've I've sort of identified before I go there, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah, I won't just fumble through tools. Sometimes you do come up with great things by fumbling through using different tools, but yeah, it's like it's a highly considered process where you you've kind of got an end point in mind, yeah. and you've got a beginning point, yeah. and then it's kind of like, well, what piece of what formula or what what kind of element do I need to add to that? Yeah, yeah, or remove from it in order yeah. to get to this other state yeah and that's definitely something you can learn um or you just pick up from doing it a lot of times and a lot, lots of it is sort of classic sound again from music it's like sounds that we've heard before like what i don't know like a specific sound on a snare drum or something you might hear it words are unable to describe this sound uh like it's like a, like a short roomy sound say something like I don't know, like a classic example is like the, the Tom Phil in, in The Air Tonight by Phil Collins, where it goes, do 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 like that sound. Like that's a really specific piece of technical engineering that made that sound happen. And I, I still use that kind of sound a lot now. I'll, I'll be working on a song and I'll hear, let's say, for instance, the snare drum, and I'll be like, that would be, I think that this specific technical idea will make that sound work better in the song. So then why do you, the question is, why do you want that sound in, in, in a particular instance? Like you've got the technical ability to make it happen. Yeah. But then what's, what triggers the kind of need or the, you know, aim? Oh, I think that would sound good there. Yeah, I just, I know that it's going to, 
like evoke a certain emotion in the list in the listener whether they know it or not whether they notice it or not they'll just sort of feel a lot of what we do in music production i feel like nowadays is is evoking previous sounds which is like there are obviously lots of bits of music that don't do that they kind of try to if anything sounds like something you've heard before the producer will be like let's not do that let's try and make everything sound like it's never, never been heard before fresh and new yeah yeah which is great and there's like amazing artists that do that all the time and i feel like underlying every artist is trying to do that sometimes lots of artists rely on harking back to previous sounds but yeah like i don't know i have like a large toolbox of sounds that i can sort of dig up at any point in time but then sometimes i'll just experiment and come up with something else or use a sort of like a skewed version of something else that someone else taught me. I'll be like, oh, they said that, but I didn't like that bit. And I tried this bit. No, now I've got a new sound that I wouldn't have come up with before if I hadn't have tried to copy someone else. Yeah, I feel like everything I've done is copied from someone else. Yeah, Whether well, it's directly or just through listening to bits of music. And then how do you, like, if you're wanting to take the audience, say, on a... On a or have them experience something how do you sort of articulate even to yourself what 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 would what's the emotion i want them to feel now yeah i sometimes i think think of it in a visual term like lots of artists that i work with they'll sort of already be thinking of like say the music video like or as we're working on the song they'll be like oh this bit feels like i'm walking down a rainy street or like i'm on a hill and it's windy and cloudy and that might in my mind be like oh that what if we use this kind of sound that will make me feel like that i mean that's getting into the sort of very sort of esoteric kind of part of it but that's where we want to go that, that's the <laughs> that's the kind of that's it or like i might listen to a song as i'm working on it and be like oh do i want to do i want to feel like i'm moving backwards and forwards or sideways or are we floating here or are we driving or are we driving on a bumpy road like sort of physical emotions or physical feelings to ground or to well, yeah, like a kind of, I guess, as a conduit to more abstract states. Or yeah, well, I feel like it all comes down to like tribal instinct of music. Like lots of all of it comes from just like people playing together and like their rhythm starting to work together. Just trying to create that, often out of like sequenced material that is very rigid, but just trying to make it feel like it sort of vibrates with the human body. It's kind of a weird thing. I'll often think of different parts of the body being affected by different parts of the soundscape. Like you might have a sound that's like a throat sound or a chest sound or a stomach kind of sound. Or a sound that gets you up on your feet. That kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, actually the song I was working on today is like a disco funk kind of thing. And it's just like, you know, if I feel good as I'm, I, like I've found many times as I'm working on a song, I might start sort of like, forgetting that I'm working on the song and be like, oh, I'm just sort of like not dancing, but sort of just moving and not, <laughs> not, not knowing why. No, no. Maybe I am dancing. <laughs> when, when there's no one else in here, the lights are, <laughs> lights are down low and I've got the coloured mirror ball on. Um, yeah, I feel like it's a physical reaction. Yeah, nearly everything I'll do will be a reaction. I'll listen to the music and if something, like I won't do anything because I've pre-planned it, I'll only do it as a reaction to what I'm feeling from the music. And yeah, quite often that's a physical thing. And you do need the space and the equipment to make it to make it physical. In this episode, I chatted with Peter Holtz, an audio mixer, producer, and songwriter. 
You can find out more information about this episode, including links to Peter's website, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.